0: What's going on guys? Welcome to today's episode. So uh, as always, if you enjoy the episode, make sure you smash the subscribe button and turn on notifications to let you know every time a new episode drops, which is every single Wednesday rain or shine, unless I don't feel like it. No, I'm just fucking around. I always I always drop an episode. So today I'm talking with uh, Dustin Aranchuk, and we're going to talk a little bit about utilizing eccentrics and isometrics in rehabilitation. So first off, Dustin, thanks so much for jumping on, man. It's awesome to have you here. Can you give a little bit of a background of uh, just yourself and uh, as, as well as the PhD that you just got? Congratulations, by the way.
1: Thanks, Dan. Yeah, it's nice to be on. i um, I'll start off by letting people know that Dan and I have known each other for probably close, I mean, close to 10 years. Um, done some lifting together. and Yeah, it's been a minute. Jeez. Yeah. Um, sort of reunited in Calgary after I came back from um, some ventures in New Zealand and Australia. Uh, so, I mean, I kind of got into the sports science thing as most people would in like high school when... They're kind of exposed to some of these testing protocols and timing lights and jump mats and things like that uh, when they're competing. And following that, I decided to go and do a degree in kinesiology and I did internships and practicums at private facilities as well as the Sport Institute um, during and following that first degree. Moved around into the States a little bit with hockey and then ended up settling down in a little town in the middle of nowhere in Colorado for a master's degree, where I also did more strength conditioning work with swimming and rugby and volleyball and basketball. Uh, Headed back up to Calgary for a period of time where I worked with the Dinos football team and then most recently moved to New Zealand and then Australia to work on a PhD, which more or less encompassed um, eccentrics isometrics and sort of a hybrid combination of the two which i'll explain a little bit further and i'll just finish up by saying I'm back in calgary and working with a great group called acumen clinic and acumen performance and we're building up our our skill set and our clientele right now it's a new
0: business but everybody's really great that's great ben so, just to kind of anchor the conversation, can you give a bit of an operational definition of injury? So, mostly the people who listen to this are strength sport based athletes and just kind of, I guess, uh, strength enthusiasts. Uh, so, just so we have a little bit of an understanding of what we're talking about and everyone kind of interprets what we're saying within a, a given context. Yeah. So, I guess
1: injury is fairly difficult to define in and of itself. Um, like, what is injury? So, again, is, mentioned to sort of anchor everything together. Uh, I'd say a pretty good working definition of it, at least for this conversation, is something that limits your performance probably due to like a pain response or extra discomfort or something like that. Um, There's, you know, other injuries we could talk about that are a little more neural that you might not be as aware of, but basically anything that's causing you pain or discomfort and is therefore affecting performance in a negative way.
0: Awesome. And could you just go into a little bit more depth in your, your PhD, because that's obviously going to be pretty relevant to, to what we're discussing today, since you did your uh, PhD and, and, or your thesis anyways, was in uh, eccentrics and quasi-isometrics, I believe.
1: Yeah, exactly. So eccentric contraction is when the muscle is lengthening under load, it like gets active. Um, and then isometric is there's no change in the length of the muscle and tendon. So the muscle contracts a little bit, tendon lengthens a little bit, but the joint angle never changes. So the quasi-isometric really came about because there's some studies that looked at the difference between holding versus pushing isometric. So Pushing would be like um, I'm doing a squat with a barbell where you're pushing as hard as you can into the squat rack and it just, it will not move. Whereas holding, you could think about lowering a, a squat to like the halfway point and holding it as best you can. And then the eccentric quasi-isometric was sort of this um, hybrid type. It's a little bit difficult to explain without showing somebody visually but you can think about holding that halfway point in a squat and then as fatigue accumulates and you can no longer hold it, you just continue to push as hard as you can, even though it's forcing you to drop deeper into the hole.
0: Awesome. And so why was that something in particular that you were looking at? So that idea came about
1: again, because there was the research on the holding and pushing, but also one of my, uh, co-supervisors through the PhD had spent a little bit of time with some winter sport athletes in Scandinavia. I can't remember exactly which country. And that was something that they did um, early on in the off season. So they hold a position and continue to hold even past that isometric failure. Uh, and they believe that it increased work capacity and well, you know, endurance and perhaps even some hypertrophy without really stressing the joints because you're, you're not really having a lot of joint movements. You're lowering it down. You're doing one rep at a time. You might only do a few reps, um, but you're exposing the muscles and the tendons to a large amount of cumulative
0: loading, even though it might be a submaximal weight. That's awesome. And so what did, uh, did they have any sort of like maybe anecdotes saying that this increased like tissue robustness to, to maybe, Reduce risk of injury during the in season. Did they have any any like data or any anecdote on that?
1: Yeah, as far as I know, they didn't have any hard data um, just yet. I think that's probably something they're working on. Something I could probably reach out back out to that uh, supervisor of mine to see if he had stayed in contact with anybody. So I'll I'll give you a rain check on on that. Um, but anecdotally, yeah, they would use it particularly for treating like tendonitis and tendinopathies or pain in the tendons um, in particular. And then it was a way where like at the end of a season and the joints are kind of beat up um, where they could and try and load the muscle, build back up in size uh, and strength without actually doing a lot of high velocity stuff that might have sort of irritated their, their knees or whatever joints they're trying to focus on.
0: Yeah. No, that makes sense. So I remember reading a paper by, I think it was like Khan et al. I think it was in like 2009, 2010, some, something around that area. And I know they mentioned that about 30 to, to 50% of, of all injuries were, uh, were tendon-related injuries. Now, I would imagine there's quite a bit of variation depending on what sport it is and, and what was actually going on when the injury happened. But um, I feel like that, is fairly relevant to to powerlifting because a lot of the times you get these overuse injuries where it's like, Oh, I've, you know, my, my pec tendon or my biceps tendon or my knees or whatever is, is the issue. And that's usually what it is um, for, for a lot of people. And so how would you, well, I guess let's just go into the, the pros and cons of, of utilizing some of these things first, so like let's just keep it simple: eccentrics and then isometrics, kind of separately, and then uh, how you maybe would utilize them together, and then the pros and cons of each.
1: So I think the eccentric loading has been a ton of papers on that over the last couple of years. Uh, to kind of briefly put it, because there's just so much out there, for a lot of mechanisms and reasons. Uh, eccentric training seems to be very effective at building muscle, um, increasing uh, contraction velocity and speed, especially when it's followed by periods of explosive training, like, you know, med ball tosses, jumps, or, you know, in terms of powerlifting, doing, you know, speed work or at least stuff where you're not focused 100% on the eccentric. Um, and yeah, very effective at, Improving tendon qualities and reducing pain, perhaps helping with collagen reformation. So, that, you know, the, uh, a lot of times when you get tendon issues, you look at it sort of under a microscope, the fibers are all cross hatched and they're very convoluted. And then after a good training period, um, which eccentrics might be especially good for, the collagen seems to like reform and get straight again, which is much better for transmitting force from muscle uh, to the joint. The issues with eccentric uh, training are, there's a couple of them, but most of them go away after the first couple of weeks. So the first is excessive muscle soreness, especially if it's super maximally loaded uh, and people aren't ready for it, um, which Asymmetrics might actually be a good tool to use uh, to reduce that issue. And the other issue with eccentric training is really to actually do it correctly. You'll need special equipment or like several spotters uh, or whatever, which just make it more difficult to actually utilize in training. Because I want to really point out that there's a difference between like true eccentrics where you're lowering a weight that you cannot lift and eccentrics where you have like 70% of your max weight on the bar and you're lowering it for five seconds and you're doing that for reps. They're, they can both be valuable, but there is a difference between the two. And you can loop back to that if you want, but to touch on the isometric stuff, uh, isometrics, again, for a variety of reasons, probably don't carry over to actual performance very well. Um, but they can be utilized for injuries and rehabilitation for reasons because the joint angle is very well controlled. You just set it, what, what feels pain-free or the area that you want to work on and you can work on it. Um, The other last downside that I'll mention is the relative inability to like track progression over time, which kind of brings us back to that holding versus pushing. If you're pushing into something that's immovable, The only way to really measure that over time is using like a strain gauge or force plates or something like that, that most people in a gym don't have any access to.
0: Yeah, so a a lot of the, I guess, issues then are are just kind of practical in, in nature. And so before, I guess, before we go into some of the other stuff, how could you maybe augment that in order to get a a similar stimulus or similar response from utilizing eccentrics or isometrics.
1: So utilizing um, without without any sort of tracking
0: technology. Yeah, exactly. So like you mentioned the difference between like a a super maximal eccentric load versus just utilizing maybe some tempo work or something like that. So what are some additional strategies people can use with a fairly low, that are fairly low barrier to entry? No, it's a good way of putting it, uh, the barrier to entry. So
1: for the eccentric work by itself, um, again, if you have many spotters, then of course you can do, more, or you can use the rails, you know, on a squat rack or a bench rack or something like that. And you can, of course, over time, look at how much weight can you have on the bar. And then especially if you're able to like film your sets, you can think about, okay, like you want to take, Five seconds to lower the super maximal weight from straight arms onto the, the pins, right? The squat rack pins or the bench rack pins. And as long as you are watching this video afterwards between your sets, okay, I'm consistently lowering this weight. It's too much for me to lift. And each week you add like 20 pounds to it, and you're maintaining that same speed of movement. Then you can be very sure that you know you're increasing that load pretty uh, progressively. The eccentric or so the isometrics, it would be similar if you were to push against something immovable and you can time it and basically give your best effort. So like a hundred percent of your perceived exertion. Um, these types of things are pretty reliable, especially isometrically. So we know in terms of if we get people to test isometric knee extensions or mid thigh pulls or isometric squats, and we do that several weeks in a row, what their max force is, is really quite consistent. Um, So you hold it for an extra second every week, or you add one additional set every week um, for a period of time. Mm
0: -hmm. And as far as the isometrics go, because there's a handful of ways that I've seen people use isometrics in in lifting anyway. So let's say, you know, you're doing maybe a a block pull or sorry, like a, a rack pull and you can blast it off the pins and then have it hit the top pin so you've got two pins set up on either side so you actually have to move it dynamically initially but then you do reach that kind of immovable force um, at the top and I, i would imagine anyways that that's probably not the best if you do have an injury but versus like maybe just having something and then progressively ramping up intensity to your max and then sustaining that for X amount of time. Like, do you have any preference for that? or Are there any sort of guidelines or precautions for, for either uh, approach? Yeah, so I'm not sure if there's any guidelines um,
1: just yet. So the, the actual practical application of these types of things with black, uh, block poles and rack poles and things like that is, is a little bit lagging
0: behind in terms of anything that I've seen that's published out there.
1: So Sorry, of- I meant
0: more so just about the, the techniques that, that, that they're implementing or the concepts that they're implementing. Yeah,
1: so I think that with your example of pulling dynamically and then into a pin, um, I think there's not not really any reason why you can't use it if you have injuries as long as you're using it in a pain-free range of motion. So you can customize it pretty easily based on the individual person and if it's causing them any actual discomfort you know, inflammation or irritation. Um, does that kind of clarify that?
0: Yeah, I was just wondering, especially because like if, if we're looking at tensions, I know velocity is often an issue that, uh, that people pay attention to. Um, so yeah, I was just wondering if you knew anything about that. So can you kind of touch on like the adaptive ability of, or like adaptive capability of tissue and how that might change prior and post-injury?
1: Yeah, so I can, I can give my best shot. Uh, <laughs> I haven't looked all that much at any of these like biochemical type reactions going on in tendon and muscle. But what is very clear is that the tendon recovers and rebuilds much slower than a muscle period. Um, but it also requires loading in order to sort of heal itself. Uh, Whereas a muscle can basically, you know, just requires time and it will heal uh, because muscle has this constant blood flow. So activity is good for a muscle to a point, even if you've torn something. Uh, Whereas a tendon, if it's strained, if it has, you know, been reconstructed from surgery, it still requires loading because it's simply avascular or it doesn't get a lot of blood flow. Um, Doesn't get a lot of these sort of healing hormones and chemicals going to it. So it requires progressive loading, um, which is where we can add in isometrics after we get range of motion back and then follow that up with centrics and concentrics and all these types of things in a systemized fashion.
0: And so when you're looking at tendons kind of remodeling themselves, a lot of that happens just kind of on the outer surface, like the, the core of the tendon itself doesn't actually really increase in, in, in density necessarily. I don't know if density is the right word, but you know what I mean? Yeah, sorry, that was a question.
1: (laughs) Okay. Uh, Yeah, so no, I've, I've definitely read these things as well. So like you're, you're certainly not wrong where that uh, the inner portion of the tendon uh, is much slower to remodel. And in some cases just does not, whereas the outer ends are much quicker. So perhaps this would be aided by slower maximal effort contractions. So uh, there's sort of a concept of like load sharing uh, in a tendon. And it seems that the slow, steady contractions um, tend to shift a little bit more of that strain to the middle part of the tendon. So this is perhaps maybe where slow tempo training might be better than super maximal eccentrics um, or other methods like that. So going very slow down, very slow up um, might help reduce that sort of load sharing going to the outside of a tendon.
0: That's interesting. I, I, I haven't heard... That before, like specifically, I mean, I, I know generally that stuff, but I mean, obviously, I'm not a physical therapist, so I've really looked that deep into it. So that's fairly interesting. So, just to make sure that I understand this correctly, then, utilizing slow eccentrics that aren't necessarily super matrix, sorry, super maximal, uh, helps with some of the remodeling on on the inner portion of of the tendon.
1: Yeah, and I mean, this is pretty preliminary stuff. I believe yeah. it was from a group in Denmark. So like Michael Kyer and Peter Krongsgaard and these guys, I'll see if I can find the paper actually., yeah. um, but I'm sure I read that maybe five or maybe three or four years ago, um, where there was a little bit greater tendon remodeling, or at least hypothetically, they believed there would be with uh, slow contraction types because there was greater amount of tendon strain uh, on the outside and or on the peripheral part of the tendons than the midpoint with faster movements.
0: See, that's kind of interesting because I feel like that is supported anecdotally to some extent. Like I know um, like Louis Simmons, a lot of the West Side guys were huge on those slow eccentrics. I know J.M. Blakely is huge on slow eccentrics for exactly that reason. Um, and I, I know quite a few power lifters who just kind of do recommend that every now and then. Like if you're doing a tricep press down and things like that, taking like, I don't know, 30 or 60 seconds, whether or not that protocol in particular is anything special, kind of not necessarily the point. But I feel like that does make sense just anecdotally based on what I've seen anyway. So I'd be, I'd be really interested to see how that kind of evolves, I guess, as, as there's more research on it. Um, how would you, would you progress a lifter from like isometrics to eccentrics or is there any sort of loading strategy? I know, God, what is that? What is that guy's name? I can't, I think he does like the FRC or whatever the functional range conditioning he's got this real fancy setup thing it's, it's pretty basic basically he does like um, isometric and eccentric loading at progressive and progressive angles joint angles um, to, to increase like tissue tolerance over time uh, but he specifically is is a proponent of I, I guess I don't necessarily want to speak for him but based on what I saw of the course they like to utilize isometrics first just because there's less tissue damage, so less likely to you know, cause further inflammation, especially early on in, in rehabilitation. And then they eventually move to eccentrics and then you know, to concentrics and utilizing like full range of motion, more dynamic movements. But it kind of starts out at progressive and regressive angles and then putting the tissues under load. Do you have any sort of strategies or have you seen anything to, to kind of support that or have any sort of you know, protocol? Yeah,
1: exactly. And I I think the way that that protocol that you just described, because I've heard of it, I've seen it, but I think your description is probably the first time somebody's actually told me what it is. Um, And it makes a lot of sense when I'm listening to you for a couple of reasons. So I think it does make sense for isometrics to come first, uh, even in healthy people. So I know like um, you have uh, triphasic training, do eccentric and then isometric and concentric uh, and I still believe it makes more sense isometric first then eccentric then our, your dynamic stuff um, so yeah starting with the isometric and working it through with different ranges of motion probably increasing the length of the muscle over time so starting you know at a more moderate joint angle and then just making the range bigger and bigger that makes a lot of sense to me um, A we know that isometric training is pretty joint angle specific. So it only really helps or predominantly helps strength at the angle you're training. Whereas um, concentric or eccentric training seems to help like the whole force length curve. Uh, and then we also know that the longer the muscle length is when you're doing isometric contractions, the more metabolically taxing it is, the more likely it is to cause some muscle damage or soreness and fatigue. Um, And we also know that the more you do it, the pain and and fatigue and inflammation and all that really kind of goes away after one or two sessions anyway. Uh, So I would say that's a very logical way to progress and then moving into eccentrics afterwards is also very logical.
0: So when you're doing some of these movements, Um, obviously pain is, is kind of a subjective experience, but are there any sort of guidelines? I've heard some people say you want to keep pain at like a three out of 10 or something like that. But I've also seen research that says that rehab where patients experience pain, and this is really, really paraphrased because I can't remember exactly what it was. They were a lot more specific, but essentially when, if you experience pain in the rehab process, it's generally more uh, effective for, for your rehab outcome. And to me, that makes sense anyways, because it probably means that you're pushing hard enough to get that adaptive response you're looking for. Whereas if you're experiencing no pain or very minimal pain, it's probably not aggressive enough for you, especially if you're an athlete. But do you have any sort of like guidelines for where people need to kind of be in that sweet spot when, when they're, when they are kind of focusing on rehab? Yeah. So as far as our own guidelines, so at at the clinic that I'm working
1: at, Uh, We're currently developing our own protocols um, in terms of uh, progression from isometric to eccentric and range of motion and things like that. And, you know, to do that, we've used our own experience and also tried to go into the literature as well. And you're right, it, it is quite a mixed bag in terms of what you see out there. I think you're right on the money in terms of that, if you're experiencing a four out of 10 versus a three out of 10 in pain, you're probably pushing a little bit harder. Um, But I probably wouldn't personally based on just flat out hands-on experience, want to go much above a four or a five out of 10. Because I think at that point, patients are going to be less likely to kind of keep going with something. And achieve buy-in if they're just hurting and it's bothering them and once you kind of get past a certain threshold it's probably going to be bothering them for the rest of the day or maybe for a day or two after the treatment um, whereas if you have them stop at a two or a three out of ten they might be more consistent so the point about pushing harder might be true acutely but maybe not so true for you know if we look over a period of, of weeks or, or a month or two
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And I mean, I don't want to mischaracterize what those papers are saying. This is just something that I remember reading and I'm kind of terrible (laughs) with names. So I'll like, I'll read something and I'll be like, Oh, okay, this is the core concept. Got it. And then someone will be like, Oh, what about this? And I'm like, I I don't fucking remember. Like I read so much shit. I have to write so much. I have to do all this stuff that I tend to just remember like the main points. (laughs) So, um, yeah, I definitely don't want to mischaracterize that, but that's to my knowledge anyways, that what, what they were saying. Yes. So I, uh, I wanted to kind of talk a little bit about like frequency of, of implementation and then also where you would implement isometrics and eccentrics into your actual program. So just to kind of anchor the conversation a little bit, let's say someone has... Um, I don't know, like pec, pec tendonitis or something like that, right? You know, a, t- a tendon issue in their pec. And so when they're benching, that's kind of where the issue comes from. How does someone continue on with their regular training while still getting in their rehab? And what are some general guidelines for that in terms of, like I said, frequency of implementation and then where that rehab is actually occurring within the session, if it's pre, post, or kind of intra session, whatever? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a very good question, Dan. Um, so I'll, I'll give my best answer, but just preface by saying that every case is gonna be a lot different than one another, right? Um, if you had somebody with a pec tendon strain and they wanted to keep benching, uh, it would come down to, well, just how bad is it? And might it be best to maybe lay off benching uh, for a couple of weeks or, or perhaps slightly more? So I know like you were saying uh, you've just been able to start benching down to your chest again after a period of doing floor presses and Spoto presses and things like that where you didn't have massive amounts of discomfort. Um, so changing things up but of course if you're coming into a big competition that you must compete in, you must do well or qualify for the next one uh, or what have you then of course that is going to be a little bit different. So The evidence is really, really weak in what I'm about to say, but some people will experience temporarily relief of pain, tendonitis type pain, following some uh, isometric holds. So if you push at like 70% uh, of your max effort isometrically, then roughly 40 to 50, 60% of people will get an acute reduction in pain. That will allow them to perform much better for like an hour or two um, after they give that effort so i would say you could experiment self-experiment with doing some isometric pushes and then bench pressing uh, afterwards So doing it as part of a warm-up
0: i have noticed something similar to that anyways as far as like just the acute reduction in pain that does return later but uh I've noticed anyways that doing like uh, dumbbell pec flies first, right? We're like really, really getting a stretch where I'm like, oh my God, I feel like my tendon's going to snap off, you know, and just going really light and then just doing like maybe 20, 25 reps and really easing into it. I found that definitely helped. I haven't tried like the actual isometrics, um, but I guess that kind of makes sense why why it might. Uh, But I've definitely experienced that acute relief. From doing like eccentrics or some other stuff that just kind of takes it into a much, much greater range of motion um, as kind of a primer. So you're saying do that as as kind of part of your warmups. So you get in there, do all your shoulder drills, warm-up, whatever, and then do like a, a pin press or like a press, sorry, a press to the pins with about 70% max force. Is that what you're saying?
1: Yeah, exactly. So okay cool. That, that all makes sense.
0: Yeah. Okay. And so I actually kind of wanted to get your opinion on uh triphasic. Cause we did mention that a, a little bit and that's something that's kind of interested me for a while. I, I have never really dabbled into that as far as like powerlifting and i read his book and I think that it sounds really cool. And I, I think that it makes sense for, for, you know, field athletes and, and various sports and things like that. Um, I don't know, I'm still kind of on the fence about how it would work for powerlifters though. I mean, it makes sense in theory, but I wanted to know what your, I guess your opinion on that. Cause you mentioned that you would take the isometrics and put them first from like a rehab standpoint. And then we can just totally veer off topic and talk about whether or not you think it's, it's viable, uh, a viable general strategy for, for powerlifters for like actual performance.
1: Yeah, so I think uh, triphasic is cool. I, I like it as well. I've used it in the past both with myself and my own lifting and with some athletes um, at certain points. And, you know, I will say when I ran it for myself, I did experience some pretty good improvements and I liked how it felt. And there's a lot of great things in there beyond just the order of eccentric, isometric, concentric, like, doing your sort of prehab stuff in between. So you do like heavy sets of squats, then you do some ankle prehab and then heavy set of squats and then ankle Take, saves time, keeps you moving. So generally a big fan. Um However, I think there are again, a couple of limitations for most people, because really I believe when Cal Dietz and Peterson wrote that book and they're talking about eccentric training, What they really are looking at is you have spotters on both sides and you're lowering that weight that you cannot lift or have a very hard time lifting and then your spotters are helping you back up. And almost nobody who actually runs triphasic has the ability to do that, right? Unless you have a team that you go and train with regularly, you just, you can't run it as is. Um, So that's probably the first issue. Uh, that I have with people saying, okay, I do try basic kind of like saying, I train Bulgarian weights, weightlifting style, but you know, almost nobody who says I train Bulgarian actually trains like the Bulgarians trained, because it's almost impossible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, Cal Dietz mentions this all the time. He's like, I worked with a great program, NCAA, you got freak athletes, so it works. (laughs) So almost anything works if you have good enough athletes. Um, Kind of get back on the topic at hand. um, Yeah, I think for, if you're just lowering the weight eccentrically with a tempo, I think arguably the best thing about that is that it's forcing you to find what is a good position, what is good technique for you. I've said it many times before, our mutual weightlifting coach in the past used slow pulls in order to just because you you just can't hold a bad position for a long period of time. So it forces you to find sort of your optimal balance, your balance in your foot. Um, But in terms of the submaximal lowering eccentrics, um, I don't think there's all that much value to it past maybe a couple of weeks.
0: Yeah, that's interesting because at least from my perspective, and I, I'm sure there's other people who use, you know, tempo work for, for a variety of different reasons and get great results. So I'm definitely not saying that that stuff doesn't work. Um, I've always just felt that at least how I implement it in, in coaching for myself in the past before I hired a coach and, uh, and for my athletes, I've always used it as more of a fatigue management tool and then also like a, a technique development tool kind of like you were saying, right? Because if if you're doing conventional deadlifts or whatever and you have like a, a 400 tempo or a 401 tempo, you're still getting a really good stimulus in, but it's not going to allow you to necessarily lift the same amount of weight. So absolute fatigue is going to be lower, even though time of tension is technically higher. But um Well, I guess you can kind of augment that too, but, but even, even that. And then also the technique, like you said, it really forces you to lock in that technique because you really feel it. Like if you just blast the bar off the ground, let's say for a deadlift and the bar kind of swings out in front of you. A lot of the times I've seen people who don't even feel that because it's just so explosive. Whereas if you have to do like, let's say even a tempo concentric, which I don't generally use to be honest. So maybe this is a bad example, but uh, say a pause deadlift or something like that, that tends to sort out those, those positional issues fairly quick or bracing issues, whatever it might be. Sorry, you're going to say something? Yeah. So I think you're, you're
1: right. There's, there's a couple of things. One, I also think it's good for novelty and there's nothing wrong with adding something to train because it's novel. You know, if you're training with no, no tempos, no eccentrics, like no chains, no bands, no nothing, you know, like you can say, okay, well, we don't really need chains unless we're doing equipped powerlifting power lifting because the lockout is never the hardest part, you know, in a squat or it's very rarely, but there's something about going into a gym one day and saying, all right, I'm, I've, got, I've got squat with chains and you put the chains on the bar and they're clanging around and it's something different that you haven't done for a few months or maybe not for a year or more. And you're more likely to just kind of work harder and come in with a more excited attitude if you're doing something that's a little bit different now and again. So I think there's something quite valuable to that that's sort of beyond physiology or biomechanics.
0: Um, Yeah, no, that's definitely true. I've, I've definitely had athletes, even not too long ago, maybe like two months ago, who they're making great progress, like hitting massive PRs on their lifts. And then they reached out to me and they're like, uh, this is one girl in particular. And she's like, yeah, I'm just kind of, I don't like training. And I was like, oh, okay, well, let's tra- let's change it. You know, which seems counterintuitive because it's like, she's making great progress. Obviously what we're doing is working really well, but yeah, it lacks that engagement. And so just like from a sustainability standpoint, probably not the best point, but actually to kind of piggyback on what you were saying as well. It could even be a cool psychological tool because I know Shiko uh, in one of his interviews, uh, Shiko was talking about how sometimes he'll use bands and chains to mask how much is actually on the bar. If he wants the lifter to hit like a new PR or like a, a volume PR for a specific set. And it helps them not get into their head because they only see like five red plates on there instead of six maybe or whatever it is. And so that's kind of a, a, a cool thing as well. I know Bryce Lewis did some experimenting with uh garbage bags on his squats and that was kind of an interesting little tangent but that's oh, yeah. we're, we're getting a little too a little too off topic i guess to, to cover the cover the weight so we didn't know it was on there yeah yeah i thought that was a really cool experiment we talked a little bit when he was on my podcast about that but i always thought that was really interesting um i know you remember caleb actually were you there when caleb was lifting at the gym no i don't think so maybe So him and I were sharing a bar one time and uh, I was stronger than him. And so I was doing like clean and jerks and he was doing clean and jerks. And then I forgot to strip the weight off one time for him. And uh, he just went up there and hit like a 15 kilo PR. (laughs) And he's like, man, that felt hard. And yeah. uh, yeah, just not knowing sometimes all of a sudden your lifts just blow up. Yeah. You know, there was another
1: lifter, uh, I think was maybe before you showed up and they just had this severe mental block at a hundred kilos for snatch. They could hit 98, 99, like 97, no problem. They work up to that. No misses every day. And as soon as you put a hundred kilos on the bar, 101, they would just like do a high pull and, and give up on it. And I think, yeah, one day they went to the bathroom and we snuck one kilo plates underneath the bigger plates. So he wouldn't see it. and He made it. And showed it to him afterwards and, and then he was much better at hundred kilos from then on out. Um, but yeah, the novelty is, is a really cool thing. Like when I was in New Zealand, I don't, I haven't competed in powerlifting and I haven't competed in weightlifting for probably 10 years now. Uh, but I still like to lift heavy and all that. So what did I do? Well, I went to New Zealand strength or whatever, and I ordered some chains cause I was getting bored of the fact I only had a barbell plates and dumbbells up to seventies or something some other stuff to do and uh, made a big difference every three or four months. I'd do a month where I had something with chains almost every day. Um, Yeah. And just on a, on a way side, there was a brand new review published today that is kind of talking a lot about this tempo movement. I haven't read it yet, but uh, for anybody listening, who might want to read it. It's called "The Influence of Movement Tempo During Resistance Training on Muscular Strength and Hypertrophy Responses: A Review." Um, so, go ahead and, and look at that published today in Sports Med.
0: Nice. Yeah, I'll, I'll check that out. Have you read it yet?
1: Yep, I've I've skimmed it. I just found it about five minutes before we got on this talk.
0: Oh, okay, cool. Can you uh, can you send that to me actually? Once you yep. Sure. So. Can. Well, one of the things actually as well that uh, I guess seems pertinent to cover kind of finishing up here is uh, the role of novelty, even in a rehabilitation standpoint. Um, how, how might that be a variable that you'd want to manipulate? Yeah.
1: So I think the, most of the time, the people that I'm currently working with are a lot of times post-surgical Because we work in the private sector, they almost always have uh, a lot more money than a lot of like student athletes would have and people that are a little bit bit younger. Uh, So they're coming in because they want to get back to -to day-to-day activities, not necessarily like high-performance sport or high-level powerlifting or bodybuilding or weightlifting. So in that regard, they're not... As motivated a lot of the time to put in the physical effort. You know, they get the surgery, they get the athletic therapy, maybe they end up getting PRP injections, things like that. Um, but they don't have this external, they don't have this other goal of like getting back to bench pressing 400 pounds or, you know, deadlifting a specific weight. So we need to build them along kind of slowly while also sort of keeping them interested and changing angles and changing this and that. Um, so I think we try and do our best of being a little bit creative after a little while, especially if their progress is slower than you might've planned on. But for the most part, we progress uh, enough between doing the different contraction types to kind of keep them moving. So we'll do the isometric stuff will gradually build to larger muscle lengths and different joint angles where there would typically be more pain. So the elbow, instead of being tucked in by the side, doing isometric pushes, we've got it abducted out to uh, you know 45 degrees or even 90. And then usually by the time they're done doing that, then we're going back to actually doing banded external rotations or banded front raises, um, things like that. And then usually by the time we've done that at a bunch of different angles, now we have them, throwing balls or doing catches with weighted med balls, um, things of that nature. So um, in that regard, variety is not really a big problem. And I think if rehabilitation is going properly, it shouldn't take more than a handful of weeks or at least a few months before you're back doing what you would be doing normally. And we don't really have to worry about, um, kind of novelty to keep people interested, especially if they're a high level athlete with a goal.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Awesome, man. So where can people find you? Yeah. So right now, uh, I mean,
1: I'm on Instagram, I'm on Twitter, uh, both of which are just at my name, which is Dustin Hornchuk, D u s t i n o r a n c h u k. (laughs) And then, um, my team is acumen, uh, sport and shoulder and acumen performance and uh, acumen performance website just went live a couple of days ago and I'll be coming up with my own like website as well.
0: Um, which will be on there at some point. Awesome. So all that stuff is going to be linked up, uh, below guys. Definitely make sure you check it out. They're doing some really cool stuff over at acumen and, uh, Dustin is posting a lot of stuff on his research and some really cool shit that he's doing over there as well. So definitely go give him a follow. Dustin, thanks a lot for jumping on the uh, the podcast, bro.
1: Yeah, thanks a lot, Dan. It was nice to talk about some of these things. It's sort of a reminder, a refresher at some points. Uh, where I'm like, oh, I know the answer to that, but I don't remember it as <laughs> as clearly as, as clearly as I hoped. Um, but yeah, thanks for having me on. And uh, we'll hopefully be getting some of our own research from the clinic out at some point. We tested a bunch of rodeo athletes isometrically and power wise and jumping and all these types of things. So, kind of keeping the sports science things going while I'm
0: back sort of in the real world. That's awesome. And yeah, I'll definitely be looking forward to that.